0: Gary, for your testimony, we thank God for your mom's uh, wrong sense of direction, I guess, or poor Matt reading skills. God's providence is indeed amazing, and we thank God for you and your wife and for your uh, for Nathan, and we look forward to just uh, years of ministering together in the Lord. Well, we've been, we've been spending three weeks in John chapter four studying this passage on our Lord's dialogue with the woman from Samaria. Uh, Because we've been here for so long, I feel like I know this woman personally. Uh, She's becoming like an old familiar friend. Today uh, will be our last study in this section of John's Gospel. And I'm sure many of you would agree, if not all of you, that it has indeed been a tremendous study um, uh, in in chapter 4 thus far. The responses from many of you have, have indeed been encouraging. In today's final study of John chapter 4, or this passage on Samaritan women, there are really too many truths here to be taught in just one sermon. I mean, I could do three, four sermons just from this section of their dialogue. This passage is really packed, literally packed, with rich truths of the Christian faith. So I I want to just focus on one overriding theme of this passage, and that theme being evangelism. Evangelism. I would like to address this theme of evangelism by posing to you three critical questions, three crucial questions about evangelism. Number one, what place does evangelism have in the Christian life? What place does evangelism have in the Christian life? Number two, how urgent is our responsibility to win the lost? How urgent is our responsibility to win the lost? And finally, what does it mean to be involved in evangelism? What does it mean to be involved in evangelism? I'll repeat them throughout the message. If you missed anything, you can catch up. Well, the first question is, again, what place does evangelism have in the Christian life? Meaning, how important is evangelism? How necessary is it? Well, with this question in mind, I want to ask you to go to our text for this morning. John chapter 4, verse 25. A quick background to get us up to speed, maybe you missed some of the sermons or it's been a few weeks since our last study, so to bring you up to speed, our Lord and his disciples were leaving Judea, they had a great ministry during Passover where through his miracles, signs and wonders in the Temple of Jerusalem many came and believed in Christ although Christ didn't believe in their believing was false faith or well, because of the increase of his ministry with John the Baptist decreasing he left Judea and he's going north towards Galilee and we I kinda of paralleled it with downtown LA and downtown San Diego and there are two routes right four or five and five and so the most common route Uh, for the Jews was the four or five. They would go around Samaria because they considered Samaritans half-breeds not just in race but in their religion. They were, they mixed Judaism with Canaanite uh, idolatry, false teaching. So they would really reject them to the point where they would go around the city of the region of Samaria and take the long route. There was one route up the five freeway that was more direct But few would travel there. Well, in John chapter 4 verse 4, it says that Jesus had to pass to Samaria. Now, this must pass to Samaria is not a logistical must. It's not an imperative in terms of geography. Our Lord had to pass to Samaria because that was the will of the Father. He wanted, ultimately we find out in today's passage, that God wanted the gospel be preached in the region of Samaria Samaria, and he wanted Samaritans to be saved. Well, on his journey, our Lord and his disciples stopped at Jacob's well, near the city of Sychar. It is high noon. The disciples are sent into the city to buy some food and it is highly likely that they left someone behind. You don't want to leave your Lord all by himself in a hostile territory. They left someone behind. Guess who it could have been? It might have been. Probably John. Hey John, you stay with the Lord and we'll go and get food for all of us. And John was silent throughout this dialogue, sitting near the Lord, listening to their conversation. And therefore, he records it for us in his gospel. Well, as John is sitting there silently, a woman comes in the heat of the day, all by herself, to draw water. She is a woman from Samaria our Lord engages her in a conversation and the mere fact that she would engage he would engage a conversation with a woman let alone a Samaritan woman let alone a woman who had a notorious reputation for immorality is shocking and she acknowledges that he is going against all cultural norms by talking to her and addressing her and requesting her for a drink well Instead of her giving her, uh, the Lord, a drink, our Lord offers her a drink, drink from the living water, where from water that whoever drinks of it shall never thirst again. After offering her this, this drink, he then confronts her sin by asking her to bring her husband. Well, she kind of dodges this issue and she kind of skirts it by saying, you know, I don't have a husband. Well, our Lord astonishingly reveals that you're right. You don't have a husband. In fact, you've had five husbands. And the one you are living with is not your husband as well. Verses 16 through 18. The woman is shocked all the more. The conversation moves on to worship. Worship in Jerusalem as opposed to worship in Gerizim. Our Lord tells her that God is seeking worshipers. The kind of worshipers that are that the Father was seeking must worship in spirit and in truth. And it is at this point we enter the passage this morning in verse 25. Well, the woman from Samaria, she somewhat challenges the Lord's authority. Um, sir, I don't know who you are, but where do you get the authority to determine which worship is acceptable to God, to Yahweh? She challenges our Lord's authority about worship by saying that the Messiah with final authority. That the promised Messiah will come and He will explain this dispute about the place of worship and verse 25, everything else. He will explain everything and He will determine what the truth is. Well, our Lord seizes this opportunity and He does an amazing thing. He personally reveals himself to her. This is the only time, pre-trial, before the trial that he ever identified himself as the Messiah. Now you would think the Lord might do this to the member of the Sanhedrin, maybe the high priest, maybe Nicodemus, maybe the Jewish leaders of Israel. He does not reveal himself to any of these people, but he chooses to reveal himself before a woman from Samaria, who is notorious for a moral character. I mean, do we sense the compassion and the love of our Lord? He tells her, I am the one speaking to you. I am the Messiah. He identifies himself as the Promised One of Israel. At last, the woman obtained an answer to one of her first questions, which was, Are you greater than our father Jacob? Remember she asked that, and earlier in the conversation, she gets her answer. Most definitely, he is greater. It's been a, a quiet afternoon for her. It's been nothing but a progression of surprising revelations. First of all, she was shocked that, uh, that this Jew would talk to her. Then she was perplexed that He would offer her a drink. He has nothing to draw water from, but He's offering her living water, which you will never thirst for, you'll never again thirst. She was staggered by Christ's ability to know her innermost thoughts. Amazed at His intimate knowledge of her heart, her past. And now, at the revelation of His identity as the promised Messiah, everything fit. For her, everything came together, And it was at this point, she was converted. At this point, she was saved. We are told that after our Lord told this woman that he was the promised Messiah, look at verse 28, she left her water jar. Then she went back to the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? Could this be the one? You know, she had come. In the heat of the day for one reason to get water, to draw water. She had carried a large vessel, clay pot, to the well, intending to bring it back filled. But she left that pot at the well, and instead she got a new heart and a new object of interest because she became in that instant a new creation. All things had passed away, all things became new at once. Everything else was forgotten for the time. And right here, I mean, we see the explosive power of God's grace. Instantaneous conversion. Salvation of the lost soul. J.C. Rouse says this, quote, Grace that is once introduced into the heart drives out old tastes and interests. A converted person no longer cares for what he once cared for. A a new tenant is in the house. A new pilot is at the helm. The whole world looks different. All things have become new. And that was the experience of the Samaritan woman. Water was no longer important. She leaves it behind to evangelize to her fellow people. This reveals her zeal, her excitement for the Lord, the first instinct of the woman was to share her discovery. Having found the promised Messiah, she is compelled to tell others about Him. In her first day of conversion, in her day of conversion, she becomes a missionary. She could not hold back oh, the truth that she, has, she had discovered in the Lord she goes to town and she she tells all the townspeople and verse 30, they came out of the town and made their way toward him. Now John has a masterful way of knitting together a storyline, a plot, a narrative. While this is ha- happening, a whole another scene is developing in this story. Go back to verse 27, we find out that the disciples by this time had returned from the city with food. They noticed our Lord talking to the, to the women and they're surprised, but they dare not say anything. They bring back food, and verse 31 they urged him, saying, Rabbi, eat something. The major concern for the disciples was their search for kosher food, acceptable food. Their invitation to the Lord to eat was a reflection of their own concern about physical sustenance. Now contrast this with the primary focus of our Lord. Our Lord's concern was not about food. It was a search for people saving the lost. Verse 32, He said to them, I have food to eat you know nothing about. And that construct in the Greek is a clear contrast between I and you. I have food that I'm eating that you have no idea. You know nothing about. Now, just as Nicodemus misunderstood the Lord, just as the woman from Samaria misunderstood the Lord, the disciples misunderstood the Lord as well. Their response was, "Man, it's not bringing food. Did he eat already? Man, like you know, he ate already, and we brought all this food for nothing." In their simplicity, they just thought of a practical response our Lord tells them, told them, verse 34, my food is to do the will of him who set me and to finish his work. Look at that verse, guys. I mean, I think right here in this section, this is a thrust. This is the jugular verse of this passage. My food is to do the will of him who set me and to finish his work. From these words, we find the answer to our first question. What place does evangelism have in the Christian life? The answer is first place. The answer is first place. The word my in that verse 34 is emphatic. Christ says, whatever be the case with others, my food is to do the will of God and to finish His work. Our Lord is saying that His foremost concern in His life was the work of God. Not even food. Food is the basic need. In the hierarchy of needs, food is number one, right? It's the basic need, basic concern of all mankind. Our Lord says for him, doing God's work, doing God's will is more important than even food. It was his foremost desire. It's his internal imperative. He is saying... Guys, your major concern is about food. You've been talking about it for hours. You went into the city, and you see this woman come, and, and, and you heard me talk to her, evangelize to her. You see a stream of people coming to me, and you're still concerned about food. My concern is doing God's will, is finishing God's work, His desire, His consuming passion, His overriding need in life. Is evangelism is saving the lost because he says it in this context. The context is what the evangelism of this Samaritan woman, the evangelism of this city, Sychar, and its inhabitants, these Samaritans becoming believers, because it is in this context. Our our Lord is teaching us that evangelism is central to Christianity essential to Christianity it's foremost in Christianity in John 434 our Lord says my food is to do the will of him and who sent me and to finish his work what is God's will God's will towards towards the lost is that they would be saved what is God's desire towards the lost Ezekiel 33 11. God says as surely as I live declares the Lord I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked but rather that they turn from their ways and live turn turn from your evil ways why will you die second Peter 3 9 the Lord is patient with you not wanting anyone to perish but wanting, desiring everyone to come to repentance. That is the will of God. What is the work of God? John 6, 29. The work of God is this, to believe in the one He has sent. To believe in Jesus Christ. Jesus says that this is the will of God. This is the work of God. This is His food. This is His concern. Main focus in life. So to Him, in other words evangelism is, was his first priority. Even before food, even before water, evangelism was more important. Therefore, for us, what place does evangelism have in the Christian life for us? Likewise, as followers of Christ, doing the work of God, doing the will of God, and the work of God must be our food as well. What does that mean? Evangelism must be our first concern. It must be our major passion. It must be something that drives our life, our major life concern. But the reality is far from this, is it not? There's some discouraging statistics. Study finds that 95 percent of all Christians have never won a soul to Christ. 95%. 80% of all Christians do not consistently witness for Christ. Less than 2% are involved in the ministry of evangelism. 71% of Christians do not give towards the financing of the Great Commission. The reality falls so short of the priority given to us by our Lord. A pastor says, wrote, What makes us Christians shrug our shoulders when we ought to be flexing our muscles? What makes us so apathetic in a day when there are loads to lift, a world to be won, and captives to be set free? Why are so many bored when the times demand action? John Stott wrote, The Christian is under orders. Evangelistic inactivity is disobedience." We have to ask, where are men and women like David Livingstone? David Livingstone was a, a missionary to Africa. He said, when he died, cut my heart out and buried it in Africa. When he died, they sent his body over to Scotland to be given a royal funeral. But they, according to his wishes, buried his heart in Africa because he loved that continent. And he gave his life for the salvation of the souls in that place. At the Shepherd's Conference, I was talking to a missionary, Peter Smith. And he was saying, my prayer, James, is for three lives. I-, I wish God could give me three lives. One, so that I could spend it for America second I love the people of the Philippines I would love to give my life for the Philippines and third I love the Czech Republic to give my life for that nation far too often Christians have become keepers of the aquarium instead of fishers of the sea fishermen of the sea laboring for the lost must be our life-consuming passion That was the food, the concern for Christ, and that is to be our concern. Second question is, how urgent is our responsibility to win the lost? How urgent is our responsibility to win the lost? Our Lord teaches us the urgency of winning the lost in verse 35. He says, do you not say four months and then the harvest? This is a common statement among the grain culture in, in, in Israel um, each year you, you would sow seeds and you would have to wait four months for the harvest All right that's the reality in the natural world uh, that once you have sowed seed you must wait no matter how how impatient how urgent you want you had to wait four months so that expression there are yet four months and then comes the harvest was very likely a colloquial way of saying, what's the hurry? There's plenty of time. It's months ahead. Why why, waste your energy and your anxiety and concern? You need to wait. Well, that's the reality in the natural world, but not in the spiritual realm. Our Lord did not share this view when He applied this to spiritual things. Our Lord had an urgent sense of mission and these words conveyed something to the disciples he was telling them they must not lazily relax they must not be comfortable in the thought that there is no need to strain themselves he says look the fields are right now ready for the harvest the disciples they sense no urgency for the saving of souls they're more concerned about food they're more concerned about resting and 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 water that in a casual attitude towards evangelism. Our Lord was saying, such a casual attitude, four months and we'll harvest, is unacceptable. I think He is saying that when you serve God, when you're dealing with lost souls involved in evangelism, casual attitude is unacceptable. You need to lean forward. There must be a sense of great urgency. You know, I love reading um, biographies of missionaries. John Mott was a college-age young man in about 1950s. He led the student volunteer movement. And this is what he wrote, storing his generation to go to missions he wrote quote the obligation to evangelize the world upon the young people of our day is the most urgent obligation the christians who are now living must preach christ to the non-christians who are now alive if they are ever to hear of christ the christians of a past generation cannot do it they are dead and gone the christians of the next generation cannot do it by that time the present non-christians will be dead and gone Obviously, each generation of Christians must make Christ known to its own generation of non-Christians if they are to have the knowledge of Christ, End quote. He is echoing the words of Christ. There must be a sense of urgency. And to help them understand the urgency of that time, he tells them, verse 35, I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. He says, take your eyes off of food. Take your eyes off of water and rest. Don't you see the people streaming? Literally streaming towards this well, towards Christ. Because they've heard about the Messiah through the Samaritan woman. And they're coming from from that city, streaming to be saved. In verse 30, there's an imperfect tense. They were coming. So that, that tells us that, that the crowds were making their way to the, to the uh, well at Sychar, near Sychar, while our Lord was talking to the disciples. While he was dialoguing with them, they were on their way. And that's what the Lord was referring to. Look up. Look at the Samaritans flocking, streaming towards Christ to be saved. The scene must have been dramatic. The Samaritans wore long flowing white robes. Imagine the fields, hundreds, if not thousands of them, coming to Christ. Our Lord's heart and arms reached out in a burst of compassion, an intense feeling. And He says, open your eyes, don't you see? Look at the fields of lost souls streaming towards us. He's telling them, who cares about food? Far more important than food, are people, our souls... He called his disciples to see that there was no time for preparing a meal, no time for eating food. These people are hungry for the gospel. It's an urgent command to have passion, compassion for the lost. Guys, evangelism is an urgent command from our Lord. It's an urgent command. You and I need to be involved today, right now. If you're not involved in the process of evangelism, you're in disobedience. You are not obeying the priority of the Christian life. There's a sense sometimes that we are too concerned about our own sanctification, too concerned about our own walk, how we are doing, our own lives, and our Our faith is is shrinking, is shriveling, because we're not out there obeying the priority of the Christian faith. Evangelism for you is not in the distant future. It's not some time in the future when through a convergence of events, you reach a certain maturity. That day will never come. If you're thinking, well, someday after high school, or college, or after marriage, or after kids, or after finances are settled, or someday when I reach a certain level of maturity, then I will commit myself to evangelism. You are lost, you are confused, and you're disobeying the Lord. We do not wait for the perfect time to eat, do we? We make time. We sense an internal imperative, I must eat. We drop everything and we find food. Likewise with evangelism. There must be an internal imperative to get involved today, right now, to make time for evangelism to reach the lost. While the two questions are answered, what place does evangelism have in the Christian life? Secondly, how urgent is our responsibility to win the lost? The third question is: What does it mean to be involved in evangelism? What does it mean to be involved in evangelism? Many have the idea: I, I got to go knock on doors. I got to go buy some tracts. I got to go to missions now. Well, from verse 36 on, it tells us what it means to be involved in evangelism. Our Lord says, "Even now the reaper draws his wages. Even now he harvests the crops, crop for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together." In agriculture, there was always a time of sowing and a time of reaping. Nobody looked forward to the time of sowing. It was kind of a sad time because all you did was work. There was no reward. There was no fruit of your labor. All you did was sow, 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 and it was just that was it. But when the harvest time was a time for joy because when you would, that's when you would gather in the harvest. You would you would enjoy the fruit of your labor. Our Lord was saying, even now, verse thirty-six: the sower has just sowed, but the reaper draws his wages. In the spiritual realm, the harvest comes immediately. Therefore, the sower and the reaper rejoice together. Our Lord had just talked to the Samaritan woman; she just got saved. She just went to to the city of Sychar. They're all coming, and the disciples are reaping what Jesus just sowed. And so our Lord and the disciples are rejoicing together. He is teaching them, and He's teaching us the nature of evangelism, that it is teamwork. It is cooperative effort. Oftentimes, the reaper gets all the notoriety, the reaper gets all the acknowledgement and the praise, Right, Oftentimes, our testimony is usually about the pastor or the camp speaker. And the people that have sold that seed in that person's life often go, often go overlooked. I think this is so true of children's ministry. It's often the most overlooked and undercredited ministry in the church, where there are these faithful men and women week in and week out teaching these little ones. But by the time, if God allows them to be saved, five, ten years later on, they can't even remember their teacher's names. But our Lord tells us, no. That's what it means to be involved in evangelism. sower and the reaper, and they rejoice together. It is a team effort. Verse 37, thus the saying, One sows and the another reaps is true. He's saying, It's a reference to the unity and partnership of the spiritual work. One sows, another reaps. The work of both are essential. It's a call to us to be involved in the process of evangelism. In the process, whether it be prayer, whether it be sowing seeds, whether it be giving funds, whether it be going yourself, proclaiming the gospel yourself, Evangelism is not broad. It's not just open-air preaching or door-to-door or sharing the gospel. It is broad. It's a whole process involved of sowing and reaping. In verses 39 through 43, we see the result of our Lord's simple dialogue with the woman. We see the fruits of His sowing and the joy that brought to everyone. Literally, the salvation of a city, a whole city. Verse 39, many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. Verse 40, when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves. We know that this man really is the savior of the world and he stayed with them for two days." These people embraced Jesus as their Savior, not just their Savior, but Savior of the whole world. I mean, there is a clear irony here that John is contrasting the response of the Israelites and this response of the the Samaritans. The Jewish people reject Christ, John 1.11. He came to that which was his own, and his own did not receive him. His own people reject Christ. And yet there are these half-breeds, these supposed um, um, heretics, and yet they receive Christ. They embrace Christ. They welcome Jesus and proclaim him, not just to be the Messiah, but the Savior of the whole world. Only time that occurs in the Gospel of John, Savior of the whole world. And it is from the lips of these Samaritans many believed and trusted in Christ." What a great text. So many truths. Let me just close with just a few final thoughts. There are many lessons that we can learn from this text. One clear lesson is um, the amazing truth that our Lord had to pass through Samaria. That our Lord had to pass through Samaria. Now, why is this? Why was this? Because, first of all, most importantly, these Samaritans will not come to Jesus. They would not enter the land of the Jewish people. There was such animosity, cultural barriers that they will not come to Him. So Jesus went to them. Important teaching for us. There's a wrong presumption if we think that the laws are to come to us. No, we are to go to them. An important part of the Great Commission is that first word, go. Go, therefore, and make disciples. We need to go. Our text challenges us to question how committed we are to obey our Lord if we are not going. Whether we cross the border or cross streets, we are to leave our lives and go to the lost, that we might share with them the gospel, share with them the word of God. Secondly, we're challenged by the Lord's food. The Lord's concern was not meeting his physical needs, but doing the will of God. I want to ask you guys, what is your food? Today, what is your food? What... What occupies your thoughts? What are your great concerns in life? Is it maybe um, failure as a student? I mean, you would just die if you got an F. Or if you didn't get into a certain school, would you just die? Or maybe it's a failure as a worker? You to you lose your job or get fired or just get demoted or not not excel in your work? What is your concern? What is your passion? What is the focus of your life? In the soap opera of your life, what is your main issue? Or is your food the will of God? Is your greatest fear it's, your greatest fear is not about school, it's not about work, it's not about finances, not about retirement, your greatest fear is it as a disciple of Christ, that you would fail as a disciple of the Lord. All right. You know, we're doing premarital. I think it was the last one, or I think it was the last one. You know, we we ask some questions. Couples that are to be wed. We ask her what her you know her fears are as she prepares for marriage. And the the girl shared, yeah, my fear is that I will not be a good wife and I will not be a good mom and not a good cook, so on and so on. Rightfully so. Well, we turned to the guy and asked the guy, what is your greatest fear? man, this stays with me. I love this. He said, my greatest fear is that I will not make an impact for God. Man, his heart's in the right place. But what keeps him up late at night? He can't sleep. It's not an exam. It's not making ends meet. It's not the soap opera issues of life. What keeps him up is a fear that he would fail and not fulfill the work of God. That at the end of his life he cannot say with Christ it is finished. I have come to do what the Lord has called me to do. Like Paul, right? I ran the race. I fought a good fight. I've done my work. The fear as a Christian is. What if at the end of my life, I said, you know what? I flitted around with a lot of little things. I was in the thick of thin things. But I didn't do the work of God. I didn't submit myself to the will of God. All right. What is your food today? Thirdly, final thought, our Lord tells us to open our eyes. To look at the harvest. You know, we need to look up away from our own concerns, our own lives, and look at people. Look at the lostness of souls that are in your family, in your workplace, in your classrooms. Do you see what Christ saw in Matthew nine thirty six When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, for to send out workers into his harvest field. Do you see people as Christ sees them? Do you see their spiritual state, that without God, that they're headed towards hell, lost forever? You know, I debated whether to share this illustration or not. I never want to be the hero of my own story, as Pastor Tim shared, but... You know, yesterday, um, my wife and I had the opportunity to have lunch with some family, friends, um, two guys that we know. And these two guys are, you know, uh, mid-twenties, 25, 26, um, movers and shakers. I think they each make six figures. Easy. And so easy for me to just look at them in those terms. We talked with them for two and a half hours about the gospel. And God allowed me to see that there's their spiritual state. And in in our conversation with them, they acknowledged all of that means nothing. Because they know that they're sinners and they need Christ. God allowed me to see their spiritual condition and look beyond their external adornment. That all these external things mean nothing. The person is not saved. We're going to worship a a song from Keith Green. Let me just read to you another song that he wrote. His theology doctrine in some places is not right, but his heart is definitely in the right place. He wrote a song, "Asleep in the Light. Guys, uh, brothers and sisters, just listen to these words. Um, I think they're so pertinent for our church, for all of us here. Just listen to these words. Do you see, do you see all the people sinking down? don't you care don't you care are you gonna let them drown how can you be so numb not to care if they come you close your eyes and you pretend the job's done bless me Lord bless me Lord that's all I ever hear no one aches no one hurts no one even sheds one tear But he cries, he weeps, he bleeds, and he cares for your needs. And you just lay back and keep soaking it in. Oh, can't you see it's such sin? Because he brings people to your door. You turn them away and you smile and say, God bless you, be at peace. And yet all heaven just weeps. Because Jesus came to your door and you have left him out on the streets. Open up, open up and give yourself away. You've seen the need, you hear the cry. So how can you delay? God's calling and you're the one, but like Jonah, you run. He's told you to speak, but you keep holding it in. Oh, can't you see? It's sin. The world is sleeping in the dark that the church just can't fight because it's asleep in the light how can you be so dead when you've been so well fed jesus rose from the grave you can't even get out of bed how can you be so numb not to care if they come you close your eyes and pretend the job's done let's pray Well, Lord, um, in, in this area we know that we are so faithless, we fall so short, and our food is a lot of things, but too often it's not the will of God and the work of God. Lord, we ask that You would open our eyes to see clearly our own sinfulness in this area, our own selfishness, our own pettiness. Lord, open our eyes to see the harvest that is plentiful, that are ripe to be harvested. Lord, grant us the compassion and the mercy of Christ that we might love the lost and desiring them to see them saved and to have eternal life. Lord, this area for Cornerstone, it's an impossible area for man to create and manufacture. Evangelism, compassion for the lost, loving strangers, Lord we've tried we cannot produce that in our church we fall so short Lord we just um, throw ourselves the mercy of God throw ourselves to the work of the Holy Spirit Lord that you would do this you would do a unique work in the hearts of the men and women here that you would give us a, a strong heavy love for the lost desiring them to be saved Lord, we are so well fed. We are so well cared for. You've given us everything we need for life and godliness, and we're just soaking it in. Lord, we do ask you that you would forgive us, and grant us just the passion, and the desire, and the discipline to be involved in the process of evangelism. In Jesus, let me pray. Amen.